Anyway, so good morning to you. Um, so we're going to arrive in chapter 12 today. Chapter 12 in our journey through the Gospel of Mark. And as you will recall, if you've been attending over recent weeks, you'll know that this particular book was written around about the year 60 AD, um, written probably in Rome, and probably to the house churches of Rome. Churches in those days were very tiny gatherings of people in local houses, an underground church to some degree. So, AD 60, it's quite difficult to get your head around AD 60. It's only 25 years after the death and resurrection of Christ. So if that book was written today, it would relate to events between 1990 and 1995. All right, changes your perspective, doesn't it? Because most of us will remember then. So this book was written at a time when many people were alive who were alive during those events. And that, I think, speaks volumes for its authenticity. I hope you brought your, your Bibles with you. Um, I, tend to, I tend to scribble in mine over the years. And I, what I find is one of the th nice things about that, when I write actually in my Bible, it took me a few months to get my confidence up because my Bible was a bit precious and I didn't want to write in it. Now I do. And I find when I come back to subjects, maybe many years later, I think, ah, yes, look at that. Look at that comment. Look, look what I was thinking at the time. Do I still feel that or have, have things moved forward or... You know, what have I forgotten? What have I put down? I can pick them up again. Um, it makes the book even more relevant to me and my life. So I recommend it as a technique. Um, but if you're electronic and you've got your electronic Bible on, then you'll have your note-taking ability uh, alongside. Um, we're now in the last quarter of Mark's Gospel, three quarters of the way through, and we're sort of speeding towards these 72 hours when we read of Jesus' arrest, his trial, execution, resurrection. Um, and these, those events form the focus, really, of just these four short chapters. Let's just recap, before we get into chapter 12, where, we, where we've come from in the, in the immediate last few pages, um, it, it'll provide a little bit of context, because like has often been said, the chapter headings in Gospels and in letters, in fact, all the way through, have been inserted in the Bible later. The story actually runs across chapters. Last Sunday, Dan took us from the start of chapter 11, and Jesus had entered Jerusalem, hailed as the coming Messiah. And we heard that, although that was a very noisy event, people were very sort of happy and upbeat, it's probably fair to say that the crowd had probably no real idea what on earth that meant anyway? Um, and if they had an idea, it was probably the wrong one. But interestingly, over the first 25 verses of chapter 11, we see Jesus actually come into Jerusalem three times. Firstly, on the Sunday, what we call Palm Sunday, but it wasn't called that then, riding on a donkey and hailed as the Messiah. He came back the next day where he tore through the temple, the outer courts of the temple, overturning the tables of the money changers before decamping again. And then on the Tuesday, for the third time, entered Jerusalem, this time passing that fig tree that he'd cursed the previous day. And there he met the chief priests and the scribes who 
ask him on whose authority he does the things he does, as it clearly wasn't theirs. I would imagine they were referring particularly to the events of the previous day. And Jesus, as you know, responded by challenging them in the opposite direction, asking them, by whose authority has John been baptizing? Was that heaven's or is it man's? And Jesus knew that they would be loath to make a commitment about that in public, fundamentally because the majority of the crowd recognized John the Baptist as a prophet in the land, and there hadn't been a prophet for nearly 400 years. So they weren't about to contradict that. And he says, well, if you're not going to tell me about that, I'm not going to, I'm not going to tell you about me, am I? <laughs> Mark also indicates in the text that each evening when Jesus left, he and his followers, followers retired each night to Bethany, which is outside Jerusalem. You have to go up and over the Mount of Olives, down the other side into the village of Bethany. And it's the village home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And you can see that in 11 verse 1, 11 verse 11, and later in 14 verse 3. It's also implied in chapter 13 verses 1 to 3, where Jesus and his followers are on their way back to Bethany, and they stop to take a breather on the Mount of Olives. And they sit, sit down on the Mount of Olives, halfway home, and look back at Jerusalem. And it's in that setting that Jesus gives that very famous prophecy of the future, both short-term and long-term. But that lies in the future for a while. Let's pick up the story. Here we are in chapter 12, verse 1. And verse 1 says, He began to speak to them in parables. Now, the important thing about the them word is, who are they? Well, it's the same group of priests and teachers of the law that he was arguing with at the end of chapter 11. And this is a parable aimed, targeted at them. Who are they? Well, the best way of summing them up is they're the elite. It's a word that's used quite a lot these days, but it probably captures this collection of different people, Pharisees, Sadducees, scribes, teachers of the law, the elite in a, in a religious society. They took their greatest pride in themselves, in their status as the chosen of the chosen, the people who knew the letter of the law. They knew it in absolute detail. And they considered themselves, by and large, above reproach. So if there was ever going to be an elect, they thought they were it. It's an elitism that Jesus targeted in a parable recorded in Luke 18, verse 9. The parable of the two men who went to the temple to pray. The Pharisee, a member of this elite, and a tax collector. The highest of the high and the lowest of the low. The same target group. Let's read chapters one, chapter 12, 1 to 11. Jesus then began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a pit for the winepress, and built a watchtower. And then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved on to another place. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. But they seized him, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Then he sent another servant. And they struck this man on the head and treated him shamefully. He sent still another, 
and that one they killed. He sent many others. Some of them they beat, others they killed. He had only one left to send, a son whom he loved. He sent him last of all, saying, they will respect my son. But the tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And so they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? Well, he will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Haven't you read the passage of Scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this. It is marvelous in our eyes. And then the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders looked for a way to arrest him because they knew he had spoken this parable against them. But they were afraid of the crowd. So they left him and went away. Okay, let's just make sure that we understand completely the characters in this particular parable. Firstly, the man who planted the vineyard. So, God himself. The vineyard is the nation of Israel, okay? And the tenants to whom God entrusted the vineyard are the religious leaders of the nation, the very latest of whom Jesus is talking to at this moment. The servants, well, they are the prophets who have come into Jerusalem over the many years of the kingdoms of Israel and Judah. Even unto the time of Christ, persecution of prophets is the way it has been. John the Baptist being the latest example. It was John the Baptist whom Jesus said, of those born of women, there is no one greater. And finally, the son. Of course, Jesus himself. So those are the characters that this parable contains. We'll come back to that. Now, a vineyard is a very, very valuable asset. In today's world, a vineyard could be worth three million, five million, ten million for a good one. A truly treasured possession. Then there's now something to be looked after, guarded, hence in this parable, the walls all the way round and a watchtower. If I digress for one moment, for fans of Star Trek, this vineyard belongs to Jean-Luc Picard, the hero of Star Trek Next Generation. I know you're watching, Bob. I got your eyes, haven't I? Yeah. <laughs> he starred in this series in the 80s and 90s, and he's back on our screens, and that apparently is his vineyard. It isn't in France. It's in California, actually. But it's rather grand, isn't it? Now, the tenants are the important things to think about for a moment. The leadership elite, recognized in this parable as the people who were looking after the kingdom. But they had forgotten what God had always intended his vineyard to be for. They were chosen not just because they were chosen, they were chosen to be a blessing for all mankind, leading all nations to come to know the one true God. 
in just the same way that a vineyard is only of use if it produces fruit and wine which goes out into the world. That was the purpose of the chosen people. It was the purpose of the chosen people from the absolute beginning. Genesis 12 opens with God inviting Abram, as he was then called, to leave his home and to journey into the land that God would show him. Verse 1. He tells Abraham, I will make you into a great nation. Yes, the chosen people. But the reason is stated in verse 3. So that all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. The purpose of being chosen was to be a light to the world. Pointing forward to the one true God. But over the thousands of years, the focus had narrowed and narrowed and narrowed. And it had eventually become only the first part of the promise, neglecting or just forgetting the second part. And they had come to see themselves as God's favorites and looking down upon the Gentile masses of the world as some lesser group. Now Dan reflected on this in chapter 11, verse 17 last week. Jesus is quoting Isaiah 56, 7. My house will be called a house of prayer. Why? For all nations. For all nations, not just for the Jewish people themselves. But the temple, the very symbol of that religion, had be, instead of unifying the people of the world to worship God together, had become, within its very structures, designed to separate people into compartments. It separated men from women. It separated Jews from Gentiles. The lesser pushed to the outside, the outer courts of the temple. And it was in those outer courts where money was changed, animals were bought and sold, etc., for profit. So not only were they excluded from the inner areas, they then had to worship as best they could in the middle of a market. Us and them. Us and them. You know, mankind has a cruel tendency towards tribalism. And Christianity isn't excluded from that criticism. Over the last 2,000 years of the Christian church, Christianity has itself often fallen victim to tribalism, to an us and them mindset. White over black, slave over free, man over woman, my denomination over someone else's. Our form of, you might say, free-flowing worship from a liturgical setting. Contemporary music over an organ and hymns. You name it, we can find differences. And they may start small and just be, oh, just a matter of style. But actually, we can dig them, we can dig, we can dig trenches and build walls very, very easily. And some of those walls have taken Christianity to war and cruelty in the last 2,000 years. And we must not forget that that is what we can do. But God, 
He's the God of everyone. He's the God of everything. Be we black or white, be we straight or gay, be we struggling with our gender identity, be we old or young, poor or rich, saint or sinner. God loves us all the same. Why? Because he is patient with us. He doesn't want anyone to perish, but everyone to come to that place of repentance and reconciliation with him. Everyone. That's his heart. If we as a church are not equally as open, didn't want to show that for a moment, if we as a church are not as equally as open and as welcoming, then the day may well come for us when Jesus comes and overturns our tables and shows his anger at us. In the same way, the lesson of the parable of the vineyard is as relevant for us today. It's the same lesson, the lesson of being here for others. And it's as relevant to us as it was for Jesus' listeners. If I just cast our minds back, let's just, just do a little bit of history. People know that I like history a lot. Uh, the Protestant Reformation, it saw a radical transformation in Christian thinking between around about 1500 to 1700. Those 200 years saw this major, major schism in what had previously been a united, a unified Christianity. Even that's a simplification, but let's take those 200 years. The dispute wasn't about the meaning of salvation, which is eternity with God. That isn't the dispute. The dispute was about the means of salvation. That was the heart of that battle. See, Catholicism in its medieval form had taught for the previous 1,000, 1,500 years that Jesus, yes, was the saviour, but that to merit that salvation, you needed to do good, you needed to good, do good works, you needed to sacrifice financially, you needed to give to the church, you needed to confess your sins regularly to a priest, you needed to do penance, you needed to undertake religious observance, not only on Sundays but on a host of feast days, etc., etc. And over the time, over the years, over the years as they rolled on, 100 year, 100 year, 100 year, this had further degenerated into a, an institutionalized system where the church dispensed grace, dispensed salvation in return for money and gifts and money coming in to the church. It had become like a business. And in a curious way, it's not dissimilar to the institution of the temple. It had almost come full circle. And Protestantism in 1500 onwards swept all of that away calling for a recovery of the core evangelical truths of the good news that salvation in Christ is a free, unmerited gift of grace embraced through faith alone, and through faith we are born again as children of God. Uh, Tim, thank you for, sing for playing that, singing, leading us in that song. We, we sang immediately before I spoke. 
Tim and I, I he said, to, what song do you want? I said, Tim, you're the worship leader. You, you choose, you do them. And then that song comes up just before I speak. We are, we are children of God. I am a child of God. I can stand here at the front and say, I am a child of God. I am a child of God. Not through anything I've done, but because, because God loves me. And he gives me the faith to believe in him. And it's a stupendous and it's an awesome reality. And what it does, very particularly, is place each of us individually, not just me, each of us, directly in front of God. Face to face. No intermediaries. God looks directly at us. We don't have to go through anybody else. God's there for you. And in so doing, it also raises, it elevates this personal nature of salvation. I remember my mother saying to me, she said, you can't save anybody you know. I can't save anybody you can't. I said, no, I know, Mum. She said, no, only God saves, only God. But it's personal and it matters. I am saved by grace. Is, you know, we sing so many songs that contain that amazing truth. Everything else about a Christian life follows on from there. Salvation is the first step along the road. But there's a, like all things that human beings do, there are aspects of good and aspects of, hmm, need to watch that one. Because a person-centred focus can lead to what I want to describe today as a sort of linear view of the Christian life or the Christian walk. Firstly, first step, as I've been describing, coming to faith, self. Secondly, maybe investing your time and effort in a, in a church. And thirdly, thinking then about the world beyond. It may start with family and then friends and workmates and nation and world and then the environment and whatever and whatever and your vision gradually goes out and out and out. But it, it's, sort of, it's this sort of journey that we all go on. Beyond the grace and wonder of personal salvation and then fellowship in a community of like-minded believers is the wider world. But it can so often be the case that we may see our contribution to the work in the wider world as being supporting others who go. Right? I endorse a thousand percent our prayers for Dave and Althea. You're going. We're not. We support Jackie out in Malawi. She's out there. We're not. And that mindset can settle in us that some people go and most people don't. And the world is somewhere over there. Why do we send people? We send people because we believe that they're going to communicate the grace and the goodness and the salvation of God and invite them, too, to come to know the Lord Jesus Christ as their own personal saviour. We know that's what we want because we know the joy of it ourselves. Now, I accept that that is a simplistic, simplified, and you might say a rather clinical characterization of the way this works. But the point I'm trying to make is that this relationship is, I think, almost implicit within us. 
One step, two step, three step. But I would like to put forward today a different way of thinking about things. In his book, A Generous Orthodoxy, Brian McLaren writes, and he's a contemporary Christian writer in America, he's a teacher, he's an author, he's a pastor, he's a speaker. He puts forward a different way of working those relationships between self, church, and the world. And in this model, the first step is Jesus himself, coming with saving love, who for the world. For God so loves the world. Step one is the step of God in Christ for the world. Step two is through his disciples, whom he sends out into the world, he launches the church. And he launches it as a spirit-filled mission community. To go and do, in Jesus' own words, even greater things. And down through the ages, the church has expanded and expanded within the context of the world. And he invites, step three, every Christian to become part of this missional community and to experience his saving love for ourselves and to fully participate in that work in the world. It's the same three elements, but thought about in a different way. In this model, the new divine vineyard of Jesus' parable is the church. The church. It's set in the midst of the world, with ourselves as its workers, filled with his spirit, and intent on sharing the blessings of his grace for the benefit of everyone. In this model, evangelism and social action come together. They, or they both express saving love for the world. They express that love locally, nationally, internationally. Those who become Christians, we welcome with open arms. Those who don't, we still love, we still serve, we still seek God's blessings on their lives. We seek their good. We seek the world's peace, God's shalom. Every Christian is a missionary. Everyone. Everyone. Every place is a mission field. And our personal salvation is part of God's universal, eternal plan. Now, back in Jesus' day, this particular message, targeted on the Jewish, Jewish temple and its nation, was not well received. We've seen in other places that when in the Gospels that when Jesus delivers teaching or a parable, it's most often to his disciples and followers, they just don't get it. They sort of half understand it or misunderstand it, get hold of the wrong end of the stick, or ignore it altogether. But on this occasion, talking to the elite, they get it straight away. Because we saw that in Mark 12, 12, they looked for ways to arrest him because they knew he had spoken this 
against them. They got it. They knew what he was saying. So let's just roll on into chapter 12 a bit further and see what happens next. In the next 15 verses, we have two further attempts to try and catch Jesus out in the front, in front of the crowd. Now the crowd is round him all the time. They're not mentioned hugely at this point, but they're there. This is Jerusalem, Passover week. The streets and the squares are rammed with people. They've come from all over the empire to be in Jerusalem for Passover. There is no quiet space. You get out on the street, you're in the hurly-burly. Verses 13 to 17. Later, they sent some of the Pharisees and the Herodians to Jesus to try and catch him in his words. They came to him and said, Teacher, we, we know that you are a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by others. You pay no attention to who they are, but you teach the ways of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right to pay imperial tax? Should we or not? Should we or shouldn't we? But Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me? He asked. Bring me a denarius. Let me look at it. They brought the coin and he asked them, whose image is it? Whose inscription? A Caesar's, they replied. And then Jesus said to them, well, give it back to Caesar then. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. And give to God what is God's. And they were amazed at him. Now the first three words of the passage, later they sent. So we're in the same confrontation with the same group of elite. They're just trying a different angle. They're ready to have another go. Now, tax avoidance is a really interesting subject at all times, I'm sure. <laughs> but in Roman times, well, it could be a lethal matter. Tax avoidance. You will certainly get yourself thrown into jail. You may be forced into slave labor or killed if you avoid paying tax to Caesar. And it's for that very reason that tax collecting was about the most despised occupation you could possibly have. And that he, the elite were well aware of Jesus' friendship with tax collectors. It hadn't gone unnoticed. Now, the two, the, two people who, the two groups of people who are with him now are the Pharisees, which we often hear of, and the Herodians. They are people who are seeking the elevation of Herod's family back to the throne of the nation. The Herodian, the, Herod's family had been deposed and they had a governor. They were trying to get Herod back in the seat again. And they thought they'd devise this perfect trap question. If Jesus said, yes, they should pay, then clearly this man supports the Romans. Ooh, that's not a good idea. If he replied no, they could go to the Romans and say, he's inciting rebellion, you know, you know that. But Jesus knew their hypocrisy, and he asked for this coin, a denarius. Ah, masterstroke, this one. A coin bears the image of Caesar, and he says, well, give it to Caesar then. But then he adds, give to God what is God's. Now that begs an interesting question, doesn't it? What exactly is God's? What comes to mind? Give to God what is God's. And the answer, I believe, is everything. 
Everything. In the opening lines of the letter to the Hebrews, we read, the sun is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his word. And this extends to us, ourselves. We made in God's image, as in Genesis 1.27 we know. God is calling us to give our very selves back to him. As his mission workers out in the world. That's what he's calling us to do. That's why he saves us. He wants us to be his mission to the world. And then finally, we have a third try to trap Jesus. Verses 18 to 27. Now the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. <clears throat> now there were seven brothers. The first one married and died without leaving any children. The second one married the widow, but he didn't have any children. Uh, it was the same for the third. And in fact, none of the seven left any children at all. And last of all, she died. Now, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be since all seven were married to her? I think this must be the most ludicrous question, <laughs> the most desperate attempt to catch Jesus out that I have ever read. I pity the wife. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus replied. He didn't reply, I pity the wife. No. He replied, Are you not in error? Because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. When the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. Now, about the dead rising. Have you not read in the book of Moses, in the account of the burning bush, how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are badly mistaken. So what you've got is this ridiculous question asked by a member of the sect known as the Sadducees. Now the Sadducees, there's this old joke about they didn't believe in the resurrection which is why they're sad you see. But forget that. <laughs> the Sadducees took a very absolutist view of scripture. They argued that only the first five books of the Old Testament were the ones that they believed Moses had written himself, and therefore they were the, the only bits of the Old Testament, their scriptures, that they said were the ones that mattered. And those five books were called the Pentateuch, which means five scrolls. That's what the word means. Moses, they said, didn't mention the resurrection, and therefore we don't believe in it either. Now Jesus knows the Sadducees very well. And he knows that they will only be persuaded on the basis of the same narrow biblical authority. So that's what he does. But even doing so, he moves past, he quickly moves past the argument about marriage. Because he can see that it's essentially a ludicrous setup. There's a deeper issue that he wants to talk about. And the deeper issue is the eternal nature of God and the eternal nature of life. His response to that is, have you not read in the book of Moses? 
So he goes back and challenges them directly on the ground that they say is the most important bit. He says, have you not read it? I am the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. I am. Not I was. I have been. I am. He is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. You are mistaken. Now, I am is an amazingly powerful set of letters. Three little letters. I am. It's the name God uses for himself. This conversation at the burning bush. Moses is trying desperately to wriggle out of doing what God has asked him to do. Moses says, Well, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me, and they ask me, What's his name? What shall I tell them? And God says to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. And the God who is forever, I am, is still sending. He's sending us. You and me. He's still the God I am. He's still sending. And that is why we are a church. We are children of God, not simply to gather together in church for our own spiritual well-being, but so that we may be built up, strengthened for mission and ministry to the wider world, beyond the walls of the vineyard. This is the heart of the message of this morning. It's the message of the parable of the vineyard. It's the message of ourselves as God's image bearers called to serve. It's the message of the echoes of Moses, called by the eternal I am, the God of the living, to go and save the world in his name. And it is finally for that very reason that the vision for the church, this little church, is what it is in 2020. Summed up in three more little words, reach, grow, <coughs> equip. To reach out beyond our walls in word and deed. To grow, yes, if we can, in terms of numbers of people who believe and trust. But also in our depth of our spirituality and understanding of God. And to equip ourselves for his works of service. Why? To bring his love, his grace, his peace to the world. His shalom. Thank you for listening. Let's pray. Tim, do you want to make your way back with the band while we do? Lord, you are the eternal I am. You always have been. You always will be. You love us forever. You call us one by one. You give us the free gift of faith through your grace, through the work, the redeeming work of your Son, Jesus Christ.
You call us to this time, this place, this existence, to be your ambassadors. Not to sit behind our walls, not to be content, though content we are with our salvation, but to be your missionaries, to be your ministers, to do our best in word and deed, to encourage people to know you, to love you for themselves. We know we can't save anyone. We know that. But you ask of us that we give of ourselves to show people the way. I was thinking earlier this morning of the miracles that are before us. We sang a song, Lord, that said, you move the mountains, and I believe you can do it again. And Lord, I, I thought of us standing here, all 200 or so of us. We are miracles in your name. There was no way we could save ourselves. No way, even if we wanted to, desperately. You did it. You moved the mountain. You made a way where there was no way. Through the body and blood of Christ. Through your gift of grace to each and every one of us. And we pray, Lord, that that same gift will be here for others too. And that's why he calls us to show, to lead, to love, to serve. That others may come to know you and receive his free gift of eternity with him. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for your word that we study. Thank you for your life, your death, your resurrection, your ascension. And we look forward, Lord, to your return. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. Amen.